0: This is 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. In 1984, the writer Anthony Burgess selected his 99 favourite novels in English since the outbreak of the Second World War. Never short of an opinion about books, Burgess's list is typically idiosyncratic and invites closer attention, so we've invited some of the leading scholars, critics and writers to tell us more about each of the 99 novels. So read along with us as we explore a reading list created by one of the most original literary voices of the 20th century. In this episode, we're talking about Giles Goatboy by John Barth, one of the lesser-known novels on Burgess's list, but it's an experimental and chaotic delight and well worth a closer look. In Giles Goatboy, the world is reinvented as a huge global university with mankind being the students and God being the founder. In the rural fields at the edge of the university, George Giles, a young man of indeterminate birth, is being reared among a herd of goats by a mysterious ex-professor who suspects him of being the Grand Tutor, or Messiah, for which the world is waiting. The only problem is, George believes he's a goat and not a student. The story concerns George's heroic adventure to transcend his goatish origins and complete a series of tasks so he can become a Grand Tutor. Along the way, he meets his mother, his mysterious father, and the love of his life but through George's goat-like eyes, the world looks absurd, and those in power look insane. The novel is a patchwork of satirical allegories. Most obviously, the New Testament, as shown in the subtitle of the book, The Revised New Syllabus, and George, the eponymous goat boy, suspected of being the product of immaculate conception. The novel can also be seen as a Cold War allegory, with the east campus of the global university in a fruitless conflict with the west campus. The novel also reckons with the idea of classical heroes such as Odysseus, Hercules and even Jesus Christ, and playfully deconstructs elements of these familiar stories. The complexity of the novel is further emphasised by a framing narrative, which claims the text was written by a computer and assembled and edited by John Barth a radical idea when the novel was first published in 1966. John Barth is perhaps most famous for his book of short stories, Lost in the Funhouse, which remains an early articulation of many of the aspects that would come to be known as postmodern. He began his career writing realist novels in The Floating Opera and The End of the Road, both published in the late 1950s. In 1960, the course of his career changed when he published The Sotweed Factor, a vast postmodern historical novel about the early colonies of America, told in imitation 17th-century prose and concerning the picaresque adventures of the real-life poet Ebenezer Cook. His fiction grapples with classical myth and literary tradition, examining the way familiar stories are used to create fictional worlds. To help us understand Giles Goatboy, we invited the novelist and critic David Morrell onto the podcast. David studied the fiction of John Barth for his PhD thesis and published a book, John Barth, An Introduction, which remains one of the best studies of Barth's early fiction. He is better known for his creation of John Rambo in his novel First Blood, which was later adapted into a film starring Sylvester Stallone in the title role. More recently, he has written a series of crime novels featuring the famed opium eater Thomas De Quincey. This trilogy, beginning with Murder as a Fine Art, is available now from Mulholland Books. John Barth, An Introduction, is currently available as an e-book. To find out more, check out the links in the description of this episode. You can also head to the description to find a list of all the books discussed in this episode. I'm Graham Foster of the Burgess Foundation, and I spoke to David Morell in October 2021. We begin our conversation with David's memories of meeting Burgess at the University of Iowa in 1975. David thanks for for joining us on uh, the 99 novels podcast. We're going to be talking about uh John Barth's Giles Goat Boy which was one of Burgess's choices for his list of 99 novels. But but first you you actually knew Burgess, didn't you?
1: Uh I did and and also uh John Barth is still alive, uh so I don't want to be in the past tense but I I know uh, John Barth as well, so there's a you know a, a interesting connection here. In <clears throat> 1975, I was an associate professor at the University of Iowa in the English department. I'm a I'm a an author as well as a teacher, and and s- sometimes people figure, oh well, David was at the Writers' Workshop at the University of Iowa, a very famous part of the university. But in fact, I was in the English department. I taught the American novel and and other elements of American literature. And uh, that year, uh, 75, uh, Anthony Burgess came to the University of Iowa um, because of an arrangement he had with the, the university's music department. He had taught at other institutions. Uh, uh, but the uh, University of Iowa, and, you know, it's, it's known for having its writers and was very excited to have it. And my, I, I didn't know for sure why this happened, but the logic tells us that he went there because the music department was going to debut the symphony. And, and what the heck, we might as well have Anthony teaching in the English department. So the way this worked is that his office was next to mine. And uh, we have to remember this. I was a, a professor. My, I had published two novels, one of First Blood and another book called Testament. And um, I'm just starting my authorial career. And here we have what for me, for, for most people, was a legend. Uh, and, and by God, he left his office door open. Then one day I thought, well, you know, I should go in and say hello, uh, I, I, bearing in mind that, you know, the, the, the huge admiration I had for him. Uh, and I had uh, a copy of A Clockwork Orange, uh, which uh, 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 for anybody interested in the modern novel has to know that novel. So I thought, well, I'll ask him if he would autograph it for me, and and so he did, and he was very generous um, in in his autograph, uh, you know, a, a very collegial greeting. Me, the the general tone was one author to another, and things like that, which really made me feel good. And I thought, well, I'll give him a copy of First Blood, and it's amusing to me now uh, because uh, I gather he kept all his books. So he kept that copy of First Blood and it shows I left out a word. I didn't want to gush with praise, uh, you know, and uh, even though that's what I wanted to do. And what I said was, you know, here's, here's a book in memory of your stay at Iowa. And I left a word out. I was so nervous. Uh, that I left the word out. And, uh, uh you know, it, so it gives you a sense of the reality of it. Uh, so we, we traded, well, I, we didn't exactly trade books, but in any case he had, uh, and we talked, I, I cannot, I cannot recall that we talked about anything uh, major. He was, I found him to be very gracious, very friendly, um, very, um uh, 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 one writer to another and here we are let's have a chat and and when I went back and forth in later days I'd say hello and uh so it wasn't a major friendship but uh it is one of those moments where you say that was a high point in my life and there's a there's a side story uh that makes me smile involving Burt Lancaster uh, because Bert had been in a mini-series called TV miniseries called Moses the Lawgiver, uh which uh memory serves was nineteen seventy-four, uh year before uh Anthony came to University of Iowa. And uh Bert Lancaster came to Iowa City, where the University of Iowa is. Well, I mean, let us let us imagine this. This is one of the major movie stars not only of his time, but of all time, coming to Iowa City to confer with Anthony about, this is the story I received, about a possible other miniseries. And um, and the story went around that Anthony had rented a house. I, I have to laugh even as I think about it. <laughs> and imagine the housekeeper. So she's, she's vacuuming the floor, the living room, and there's a knock on the door. And she goes over to open the door, and there she is looking at, and she's sure she's insane, Bert Lancaster. And she says, and he asks, is Anthony home? And no, he isn't. And, all right, well, I'll try to contact him other ways. And I just think that's a hilarious story. And and Bert generously agreed to give a workshop for the University of Iowa Drama Department. And I had a friend who was in the drama department who contacted me and said, hey, if you, in an hour, if you have the time, get over here because Burt Lancaster is going to do a workshop. And, and, and in any case, one other a quick story about um, University of Iowa um, and Giles Goat Boy, which is a form of uh, – Giles Goat Boy is both considered metafiction and also something called fabulation. Uh, and it turns out that the a major book about fabulation called The Fabulists uh, was written by a man named Robert Scholes. And Robert Scholes wrote that book while he was at the University of Iowa. And I had, he had then moved to Brown University, and his office, his old office, was my office. So here I was in Robert Scholes' former office next door to Anthony Burgess. Uh, and here we are talking about a book of metafiction and and fabulation which uh, which basically um, uh, started in, in, in many ways with john barth
0: well that that's a fascinating story and i think you've you've provided a really good link to get into talking about John Barth and Giles goatboy uh, How did you first discover the novel and and what did you first make of it?
1: Well, I, I'm Canadian uh, by birth. I, I was raised, born and raised in Canada in southern Ontario near Toronto. Uh, and I had gone to the Penn State University because I uh, was very impressed by the scholarly work of a Hemingway um, a professor named Philip Young uh and uh, people listening, uh uh professors do have influence. I mean, here was um I was newly married, my we had a a, a a new baby and my wife and I and our very small child immigrated to the United States to go to Penn State to be with Philip Young. Well um John Barth had taught at the at Penn State there's, there's these interesting uh uh you know and not exactly coincidences, but uh, the way things tie together. And uh, it, uh, Jack, as he likes to be called, had come to Penn State in the mid '50s, uh, and um, had gone from writing two realistic novels, uh, "The Floating Opera" and "The End of the Road," to um, "The Sotweed Factor" and then Giles Goat Boy, which were the reverse, which were in which he was basically turning his back on realism and exploring other ways to write fiction. And um, his best friend, John Barth's best friend at Penn State, was Philip Young. Uh, So uh, 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 Philip and I would talk about Barth. And as it turned out, in 1966, the year I arrived at Penn State, that was the year Giles Goat Boy was published. And it it made a great uh, stir at Penn State, uh, and people wished he were still there so that they could uh, bask in the in the attention the book was getting. But also, um, John Barth was suddenly a New York Times bestseller, and nobody could figure it out uh, because Giles Goat Boy is is very long, over seven hundred pages, uh, and is a not exactly the sort of, of, of book that one expects on a bestseller list. Uh, so uh, there was a lot of, lot of talk about it. And um, a few years later, I said I was at the point where I needed to choose a topic for my dissertation. And um, Philip Young had written about Hemingway, uh, 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 two books of which I note are on Anthony's list. Uh, and um, he had written about Hemingway when Hemingway was still alive, and we were talking about what would be a good uh, topic, and he said, well, why don't you write about Jack? Um, in a way, it's similar to me writing about Hemingway, that uh, he's still alive, and there is a, you know, an immediacy to the reactions to the books that that's uh, still available, unlike writing about authors who are deceased. And uh, the more I thought about it, the more interesting it became. Jack had studied at the Juilliard School of Music uh, to be a drummer and an orchestrator uh, before he went on to be an author. And uh, I, it, I continue to think that the knowledge of music, especially how music is constructed, and Anthony's a good example, uh, is very helpful in structuring novels. Uh, in any case, Philip Young had a piano in his basement, and he decided to have a jam session with the various professors uh, in the English department. One was a trombonist, uh, a man named Robert Frank, who was a medievalist. And uh, Jack was going to play the, the the drums, and uh, uh, and Philip invited various people, and there were cocktails, and there was uh, you know some jazz. It was a really really a memorable afternoon. And um, Philip went to Jack and said, um, "I want you to meet a student of mine, and uh, I think maybe they'd had some words about it sooner than earlier." In any case, uh, 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 Jack came over and uh, I had a chance to talk to him for about 15 or 20 minutes. And I explained that I wanted to write a dissertation about his work that would be very different, uh, that would, in effect, be the story of how the novels were written, uh, and that it would rely a lot on his interviews, uh, both in print and also if he would be so kind as to allow me to interview him often in person. Uh, and uh, he said, sure. Uh, and in fact, he gave me permission to go to his, his uh, uh, archive at the um, Library of Congress in Washington, DC. Uh, and the security there was very strict, but I had the written documentation and they let me in. I, and I spent a very exciting day, uh, there with his, uh, with his archives and, and notes that he'd made for his novels and things like that. So, um, with his guidance, uh, I was able to write a dissertation. It was very, very different. The story behind the stories. Um, and, um, while we can't always trust an author to know what the value of a work is that that author has written um sometimes uh, things happen magically uh but often as with uh, john barth um the degree of deliberation um with which he wrote his books um was uh something that was worth uh recreating on the page
0: great and, and the picture you've you've painted there is is of giles goat boy being uh a- a huge phenomenon um which even though i i'm a massive john bath fan it strikes me as quite odd because it is a uh an extremely difficult book in in many ways why do you think burgess selected giles goat boy for his 99 novels over say something like the sotweed factor which is much much more uh fun it's a romp the sotweed factor it's uh uh, a, a sort of high comedy whereas Giles Goatboy is something a lot more complicated. Uh what why why do you think Burgess chose it?
1: As I think about the body of uh John Barth's work and the relationship it has to uh, one another the titles, uh the sotweed factor seems to me more representative of what Anthony's talking about um uh, uh in his introduction to the 99 titles uh but um he wrote what is it 1982 that he wrote uh, uh the notes for this i'm
0: 1984 um, he he wrote okay. the, the book yeah
1: uh but close enough and 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 uh metafiction uh, uh and we'll no doubt wind up talking about this metafiction or fabulation or postmodernism as the books are sometimes called um, uh, was very, um, to use a very unscholarly term, hot in the 60s and the 70s. By 85, it was starting to dwindle uh, interest in it. And and these days, it seems like it's very seldom, except for what we're doing, it's very seldom you hear anybody talk about it. The sense I get from what he said about the book is that he admired its bigness. He admired its scope uh its expansiveness uh, uh not only in terms of plot but also in terms of the malleable techniques that uh, uh Barth was using um and uh that uh, as he says that book went against uh, uh current trends uh if if you think about um much of what was being published then and now uh, it's a very uncharacteristic uh, a book for certainly for the bestseller list. And I think he was just uh, uh, overwhelmed, uh, A, uh, by its its um, intelligence and its multi-techniques and its ambition and size. Um, and I mean, it, it's hard to ignore it, or The Sotweed Factor, we can go in. And for people who might not know about The Sotweed Factor, it's an imitation 1700s novel uh, and uh, done brilliantly Um, about a real man named Ebenezer Cook about whom not a whole lot was known so that he could use a lot of the written, uh, Barth could use a lot of the written, what we know historically, and then amplify it. I think, um, uh, as, as, as you and I agree, probably the saltweed factor would have been better. My favorite Barth is something called Lost in the Funhouse. Uh, which uh, the short story in that, which is a a, 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 sto- a short story about writing a short story, um, is uh, something that I've referred to again and again in my own work and in my teaching. It's a, if uh, our listeners aren't aware of it, it's uh, the book Lost in the Fun House, and then within it is the is the short story, and the Fun House is uh, fiction, uh, which is a kind of a surrogate for life.
0: You mentioned "Lost in the Funhouse," and and that book I think is is particularly important in Barth's career. But but sort of combining that with with Giles Goatboy Goat Boy has meant that that Barth has often been called one of the first pioneers of postmodern fiction. Yes. Do you think that's a fair categorization? And and does Barth himself uh, agree with that, or does he resist it in any way?
1: Well, uh, he, he tended not to. Put himself in a, in a relationship with other writers, I, I, except you know, the uh, people like Borges, uh, he certainly felt was an influence. And uh, you know, it occurs to me that we, for people not familiar with Giles Goodboy, it's a uh, it, it, it was written at Penn State, and in a way, it's about Penn State using. Penn State and its various elements, various campus elements, and the fact that uh, Penn State began as an agricultural college. Uh, so he has goat barns in 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 the novel and, and basically uses the university as an allegory for the condition of the world in 1966. Uh, now, as Anthony notes at, in his uh, commentary about the novel, Uh, that uh in fact i have it here he says um uh he says the the book is allegory parody didactic treatise fable religious codex and the taking of it seriously entails the taking of it unseriously which is to say that it's a comedy um and, and he talks about the allegory being uh, quite accessible I mean it's very obvious and uh, and, and, and various real-life people appear in disguised forms such as President Eisenhower whose brother Milton Eisenhower was the president of Penn State at the time that uh, Jack was writing Charles Boy*. Uh, So the one theory about the reason that Giles Goldboy became a success, um, uh, uh, that is a bestseller, a financial success, is that people read it thinking it was a roman clef, uh, that they were going to see, you know, it's almost like a Harold Robbins novel and and, uh, and Anthony talks about, (laughs) Uh, uh, elsewhere he talks about Harold Robbins um and not very uh not very kindly uh but some of these books it's like the godfather and you know the 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 singer in there is frank sinatra uh so that you you know you think you have some insider knowledge and uh so one theory is that people were reading the book to see what real life people were embedded with other names in this allegory so we have east campus and west campus and we have a a computer, which in 1966 is pretty amazing. Um, And the computer is like the uh, hydrogen bomb. And uh, some of it in retrospect feels, um, feels like, like a stretch, like, okay, we get it. But what distinguished the book was that um, Philip Young, uh, having read The Sotweed Factor, pointed out, to John Barth, that elements of the story matched what Lord Raglan had said in *The Hero* and Joseph Campbell had said in his books about mythic heroes, um, and that uh, and, and 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 Jack got very excited and he went off to the to the library, which is almost exactly as it is described in Giles Goat Boy*. Um, and uh, he, he took these books uh, and read them and began making notes about the ideal hero's journey. And he had 22 stages, uh, much of which he took from Lord Ragland. Um And um, Philip Young was known at the time for not only being a Hemingway scholar, but also for having pioneered something which we could call mythic criticism in which certain, um, certain stories such as Rip Van Winkle, the Rip Van Winkle story by uh, uh, Washington Irving can be investigated as when it, 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 uh, including archetypes and other kinds of mythic um, ingredients that we could then move over to Freud and Jung and, and what have you. It's a very, I found it a very exciting a way to look at, at some books. And so what uh, John Barth did was consciously structure the book along the 22 stages of the hero, mythic hero's journey. And, uh, and and I, going through his notes, found a chart that he had made, um, a circular chart in which he showed, you know, from birth, of, uh, 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 through of the hero's from birth From uh, mysterious origins, usually uh, often from a a virgin, and and on through uh, uh, the thirty three, the 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 things, the crisis that happens at thirty three years of age, and what happens afterwards, and um, uh, uh, the Christ story is is one good example um, if we approach that the the biblical story from a mythic point of view, Um, and anyhow, so what what. Uh, Barth was doing was something that had never really been done before Uh, that uh, that here we have a scholar commenting on what subconsciously authors had been doing and now we have an author consciously using elements in Raglan and Campbell uh, to to look at it from a different point of view and I, I might add that Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces was a huge influence on my first blood novel um, I used his, various stages of the Mythic Heroes, um, uh, particularly uh, 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 Campbell's separation, initiation, and return structure, that we, we're born, we have a home life, and then we leave home, we go out in the middle of our lives in, in initiation, and then we return home to discover that everything is not what we imagined it when we were young. And uh, in in First Blood, we have elements in the town with Rambo breaking out of jail, going up into the mountains where he has a mystical experience in a bat cave, and then coming back to town uh, for the third act um, a totally changed person. Uh, So it's funny how you know these ideas, uh, especially at an institution like Penn State, can you know fertilize back and forth.
0: It seems to me that each of his novels is an attempt to reprocess myth or classical literature, you know, the sort of uh, stories, that, that like the A Thousand and One Nights and, and uh, those sorts of things. It's an attempt to sort of reprocess them and, and literary criticism to a certain extent, as you've been saying, in a, in a way that creates a new story. Is that, is that a fair thing to say?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, We have we have uh, here a mind that expands uh, 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 the books. uh, Reading Barth chronologically, it's amazing to see how his mind expands in terms of how to write fiction. Um, He he, uh, he once said in an interview, and I talked to when I I teach writing occasionally, and I mentioned this to students, that you have two choices. Uh, and these are John Barthes, uh options. You can either be a Windex writer. Uh, and I don't know if Windex is a brand in, uh, in the UK. It's uh, what Americans use to clean windows. And so, you know, the Windex is that you're never aware that you're reading a novel or a short story, uh, that the technique is transparent, that it invites you to... In- Yourself in the story. And even when you're turning the pages, somehow you're doing it subconsciously and not being aware that there's a book in your hand, so that if you're interrupted, it's like you're coming out of a trance. So that's one choice to be a Windex writer, or you can be, as Barth said, you can be a stained glass writer in which the stained glass uh, colors what's beyond it and in fact becomes the whole point. So it's either an invisible window or else it's a self-conscious window. Uh, In his two early books, the floating opera and the end of the road. um, These are, one is a comic realistic fatalistic novel. And the other one is pretty, it's very depressing. uh, uh, As the title suggests, the end of the road and having written these two Slightly different realistic novels. He had this epiphany that he was going to write something. He'd heard about Ebenezer Cook uh, in uh, late 1600s Maryland, which is where here, where basically Jack was raised in Maryland, in the Tidewater area, and so he thought that might be interesting to write a book about uh, a, a imitation. You can see how his mind goes all right i'll write about this guy from the late sixteen hundreds but wait a minute uh does that make sense to write a modern novel that uh, what feels like a modern novel about a sixteen hundreds character, or do I want to write a imitation novel that's sort of from the period about that period um and you know now immediately you're in a on a second level, and I find it very exciting is as you know, I wrote um, three books our, our Manchester connection uh Thomas de Quincey, the opium eater uh was uh, uh, born in Manchester and went to the Manchester grammar school uh, version of the buildings of which still exist um, and um and i when I decided to write uh, a series of mystery thrillers about de Quincey, uh the choice again it, it, this is the barth influence, i said well i I could write it. You know, as, as if it's right now, and, and but with all the historical, you know, all the ideas we have now, Freud, for example, and Einstein, uh, as two examples, um, which makes all kinds of anachronisms in in the text. Or I could pretend that I'm writing an 1854 novel in the manner of, say, um, Charles Dickens, or my favorite of the period, Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Um, and so, uh, and, and this is Barth's influence on me, but he's, he's going at it like as if it'd never been done before. I'm sure we could find a few examples. And it's very exciting, uh, for him to write this, this uh, imitation novel, which is not realistic and yet in parts feels that way. And then, you know, he, he goes one step further with, um, with Giles Goatboy. There's a moment in Giles Goatboy which defines Barth's later work. Giles is in the library, racing away from some people who are desperate to get him. And uh, so it's a kind of a thriller moment. And And we know that Jack is, you know, imitating a thriller at that point. And he's lost in the library, which I have to laugh, is like lost in the funhouse. And he he sees a reference library ahead of him, librarian, and rushes up to her because he wants to know how the heck to get out of this place. So he runs up to her, and and now I'm paraphrasing, I don't have the quote, and says, how do I get out of her here, I asked. And I heard her say, how do I get out of her here? And she looked up at me from the book she was reading as if I was exactly the person she expected to see at that moment. So what we have is a librarian reading Dal's Goat Boy. The novel that we are reading, and that she—I mean—the layers of of reality or non-reality—I I, find—I I find that moment chilling, in the way that it it um, adds so many depths. Uh, uh, I don't know uh, 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 if you'd like to comment on that
0: actually in all of bath's work there are moments like this i mean listening to you talk about that it reminded me of tidewater tales in which uh the main characters sort of find find the story floating in the in the in the, yes. in the river that they're sailing on essentially and I, I think that's that's really important but but one thing that that I think talking about Barth in this in this way as as a, a sort of self-referential author, um, an author that that is is sort of playing scholarly games within his fiction. That sort of avoids what some some of the things that I, I find in in his fiction, especially Giles Goat Boy and the Sotweed Factor, is that the novels are very, very human. There are moments of of sort of pure human experience. I wonder if you could say anything about that.
1: That was one of his goals. He talked about fire and ice. There's an essay he wrote on the subject I think it was for the Washington Post uh, book world, which is no longer um, with us, um, and and about that that he he brings to to his work a degree of preparation and deliberation to hear i I, I heard him give talks uh, in a formal, uh, circumstance in auditoriums, um, I believe three times. And to hear him t- talk about the way he puts fictions together that, uh, he, it, 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 there was a, I can't recall what work he was talking about, but that he had three climaxes in the novel that he'd set up the, the narrative so that the climax of one plot point would enable the climax of the next plot point, and would then enable the climax of yet another plot point, and he linked these to multiple orgasms. Right, uh, and that's that story is very uh, typical of, of the humor um, and the for for such a uh, uh, intellectual writer, so so uh, in a way. Uh, down to earth and uh his goal he said it's 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 very interesting of course to have the technical proficiency to be able and remember he was a musician uh, wanting to be an orchestrator the the structure um that uh to have that technical proficiency but he said if that's all you have um what's the point uh and that so it, you have the ice of the of the narrative deliberation and that he would mingle it with, um, the, the passion, the fire that he hoped he brought, um, to his, uh, to the characters. And often the characters were stories themselves. Um, so we know, uh, in Lost in the Funhouse, he has a couple of stories in which the st- stories narrate their own life story uh about how they were born in someone's mind and how how they originated and and when case didn't turn out too well um and uh in some ways when when I teach writing and I, in, in my writing book I have a, a writing book uh, and I point out that uh, in some ways all you need to do is read the short story lost in the funhouse and you know everything there is in, in a way but the basics there's a, a, a he he uh he talks about um what he calls fill-in-the-blanks writing. He had hair that looked like dot dot dot, and it, and the narrator says, "Well, what are our choices here? What does his hair look like?" Or I forget if it was his hair, but um, and he says, "So this this basically is fill-in-the-blank writing. It really doesn't matter what you put there, but you've got to put something." And you can you sense that this is the problem that he had with realism. Uh, that it had so many fill-in-the-blank moments that were required a character walks in a room must be described. Well, if you do that long enough, it gets to be pretty tedious. Um, and, and what John Barth had found was a way around
0: this. You've talked so brilliantly about about Giles Goatboy and Barth's work, but what, what do you think the legacy of Giles Goatboy is? And, and do you see the influence of Barth in any authors working today?
1: I don't. Um the the world changed. There were there were other um other writers uh working in this. We mentioned Pension and John Fowles and and you know uh, Samuel Beckett, Nabokov, uh, William Gaddis. I I just made a list. William S. Burroughs, who who, if I'm not mistaken, was a friend of Anthony's, is that correct? Uh
0: they Burroughs. met uh, they met a few times, yeah.
1: Okay and Kurt Vonnegut and Donald Barthelme and and Thomas Pynchon as we said um it was a very hot i i remember when for a time that's all the kinds of books that were being reviewed were metafiction fabulation postmodernism and then um as happens things get not so uh current and i i i dare say that um he now um is somewhat Of a footnote, uh, I I hate to say it, um, that you don't. I don't see the influence, except uh, and forgive me. um, John Barth influences all through my own work. Now I I write popular fiction that tries to be more than that. I try to. I'm trying to suck readers into the narrative, and then I have devious undertones that I'm trying to uh, communicate, Uh, and often. Uh, it is in the form of the kind of metafiction that um, that John Barth uh, was known for. Uh, and I have dedicated a few books to John Barth um, and I talk about him whenever I talk about writing. And, and, you know, going back to what I said earlier, are you a Windex writer? Or are you a stained glass writer? Your choices stem from that. Um, so, uh, but at the moment I, I as sad as it makes me seem and, uh, it makes me feel, although I'm sure we're going to get people saying, "Why, well, you fool, look at the influence here and look at the influence there. Uh, but I, at least in, from my perspective, I'm, I'm not seeing it. Um, it. It may have been so absorbed. I can't imagine that uh, Quentin Tarantino, whose, whose references are filmic, would have, have known um, Barth's work. But boy, he sure, right, he sure makes films that are in uh, Barth's tradition.
0: I I think that's that's interesting I think I think um the work of Bath and and the work of the postmodernists of the 1960s and 70s in general has been to some extent been absorbed into the mainstream and it's sort of filtered out um but the the author that I I think of when I think of John Bath is David Foster Wallace who wrote a story um called Westwood the course of empire takes its way and it it's a sort of he describes it as his patricide uh short story and it, it's a way of uh in his own words killing off the influence of bath and i I, mm. I i think that that sort of bath's rough treatment in a way by david foster wallace has has sort of convinced a lot of people that bath wasn't as important as as he was and i think that's a real shame and i i think wallace is is wrong um i i think, uh, bath is an, a tremendously important writer and uh, i i think i i wish people would would read read him more really
1: well the uh, certainly he was he is among the most major authors of the 60s and 70s and uh the number of awards he received um it testified i mean prestigious awards national book awards like that uh testifies to um the influence but as we know uh things change and especially in our culture today where uh i mean it's it's uh, almost like years transition the things just happen so fast and seem to be um you know negating and erasing um uh, uh, where we came from but uh you it, you put it very very well uh he became um so uh, uh, authors had to be aware of him uh, you know, it it it's a to change the metaphor a little. There's a, a a film, The Wild Bunch, a 1969 film by by Sam Peckinpah, and it's it's the film that had the most influence on me, um, and again, it, it, it affected my later work. Um, and um, in movies, especially in westerns. Uh, that is 1969 with the wild bunch is a watershed year thereafter westerns had to make a choice to either do revisionistic westerns or else go back deliberately and imitate the earlier classic forms of the western Uh, and uh, this goes back to windex and stained glass um, that uh, for a time uh, that was a choice that uh, authors had to make because oh, it's hard to just, hard to exaggerate how much this was a topic in book reviews and in essays in prestigious magazines, not scholarly magazines, but like the Atlantic and things like that. In fact, uh, it was the Atlantic, I, I believe, that published "Lost in the Funhouse." Uh, and so, what you said it, that, that this debate got it, it got absorbed. Uh and then uh as you as you put it filtered out, I, I think there are still writers who are in that are still following Barth's example, even if they are not perhaps being as uh, self-conscious about um the way they might um uh, write the book. I get very excited when I think of Barth because he had so many so expanding what the idea of what uh fiction could be. Um he said. Um, uh, 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 reality's a nice place to live, uh, but you wouldn't want to stay there very long. And neither did fiction.
0: I, th- I think that's a, a brilliant summation of, of what makes Bath not only important, but really enjoyable to read. Um, just w- one final question. Uh, Burgess chose 99 novels for his list. If you could select a hundredth novel, uh, what, what would it be and why?
1: Uh, i i will I will go in a totally different direction um, the, the people ask me about the novels that changed my life as an author uh, and they would i suspect uh, um, be of the sort that uh, Anthony was talking about as uh, as uh, popular works that perhaps didn 't transcend um There's a a British author named Geoffrey Household um, who uh, wrote a novel called Rogue, R-O-G-U-E, Rogue Male, M-A-L-E. And it's about a British big game hunter who on the eve of the Second World War sets out to stalk Hitler and goes into Europe from the UK and, and, and he gets caught on the first page. And it's not about the stalking, it's about his escape. Uh, and uh, Household wrote the book in 1939, about 1939. Um, and when I was trying to be a writer, learning to be a writer, and I was writing very bad academic novels. And um, a professional writer I had met at Penn State, whose name was uh, Philip Klass, his pen name, he was a science fiction writer, uh, William Tenn. He said, based upon a draft of a story that I'd let him see, that he'd agreed to see, he said, you've been reading Jeffrey Household. And I said, I don't know who he is. And he, he lent me a copy of Rogue Mail and I read it and I came back to to him, and I said, you mean you're allowed to write this way? And that changed my life so that uh, I would have to put that novel um, um, more than anything. Uh, and uh, I was gratified that there was a film uh, made of it with uh, Peter O'Toole uh, that the British Film Institute recently uh, remastered.
0: Is is there anything that you've got coming up that you want to tell us about?
1: As, uh, I, I'm working on a Western. It's taking me a very long time because there are so many cliches in Westerns. Uh, but the cliches have a reason uh, for existing because they tap into certain elements of excitement. Uh, and so what I'm trying to do is find another way to write a Western that still satisfies us as a Western. Uh, but at the same time, makes it seem as if a Western had never been written, and oh boy, is that hard! Uh, and some days uh, I'm in my third year, uh, which is not something I'm used to. The, uh, first Blood took me three years, my first novel, and I'm not used to that kind of length. Um, but I'm I'm just doggedly determined, and and once again, I think the reason i'm i'm persisting is again that barthian influence That what can you do to take a genre inside out and yet still uh, provide the excitement that the genre gave in the first place so that's what i'm doing and lord knows when it'll be finished
0: david thank you for joining us uh, it's been a fascinating insight into into bath and your connections with with bath with burgess with with literature in general so thank you very much for joining us
1: Well, it was a thrill to talk about these things.
0: You've been listening to 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. To join the conversation and suggest your own 100th book for Burgess's list, you can use the hashtag 99Novels on Twitter. David Morrell's latest novel is Ruler of the Night, the third volume in his series about Thomas de Quincey. It is available now. You can find out more about David at his website, davidmorell.net. For more about Anthony Burgess and to find out how you can support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. The theme music is Anthony Burgess's concerto for flute, strings and piano in D minor. It is performed by No Dice Collective, who can be found online at nodicecollective.com. If you have enjoyed this episode, why not leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.